0: What does it mean to be called crazy in a crazy world? Listen to Madness Radio, voices and visions from outside mental health. Sponsored by peer-run support communities, Freedom Center, The Icarus Project, and Portland Hearing Voices. Madness Radio can be heard on FM stations on the Pacifica Radio Network and is streaming, podcasting, and archived at madnessradio.net. Welcome to our new broadcast station, KBOO, in Portland, Oregon. Thanks for joining us today on Madness Radio. This is your host, Will Hall. Today, our guest is Joanna Moncrief. She is a senior lecturer at the University of College London. She's a practicing psychiatrist with the National Health Service and the co-chair of the Critical Psychiatry Network. Uh, Joanna is the author of the new book out in paperback, The Myth of the Chemical Cure, a Critique of Psychiatric Drug Treatment. Uh, She's widely published in medical journals in the UK and Europe, and she's also one of the editorial advisors of the publication by the Icarus Project and the Freedom Center that I authored, The Harm Reduction Guide to Coming Off Psychiatric Drugs. So thank you for joining us today on Madness Radio, Joanna Moncrief.
1: Thank you, you're welcome.
0: Well, your book, The Myth of the Chemical Cure, A Critique of Psychiatric Drug Treatment, is is really excellent detailed look from a medical perspective on how drugs work and the myths and misunderstandings about what um, psychiatric drugs are all about, and we're going to be getting into that and especially focusing on bipolar medications and bipolar disorder, especially um, lithium. Tell us about how you got interested in having a critical perspective on drugs and psychiatric uh, treatments.
1: Well, when I started working in psychiatric hospitals as a junior doctor, what struck me immediately is how drugs were absolutely central to the process of treatment. Almost everyone um, who came in as, as an inpatient and most people who were seen as outpatients were on at least one sort of medication and most people were on numerous different sorts of medication. And from my perspective, an awful lot of it didn't seem to be making that much difference. It seemed to cause a lot of secondary problems. And yet other doctors had a completely different perspective and seemed to think it was wonderful and people were getting better and because of the drugs. So I was aware that there were very different points of view about drug treatment early on, and that made me want to go and find out more about it.
0: And so what were some of the um, things that you've discovered and write about in your, in your book?
1: Well, one of the things that interested me, interested me was the was the history of drug treatment. And when I looked back um, to the beginning part and the middle part of the 20th century, it was obvious that drug treatment, although it was used, didn't excite as much intention and interest as it does nowadays. And people didn't really think that drugs were curing people. They didn't think that drugs were altering the fundamental underlying problem. And then from the 1950s, that started to change. And psychiatrists started to believe that the drugs they had really were affecting the underlying disorder and helping to reverse it and to bring people back to normal and yet there wasn't really any evidence for that change in point of view so that's what I've been looking at in my book and and in other papers I've been looking at the evidence base for how we view psychiatric drug treatments today and what it is trying to understand what it is that they actually do to people
0: now I guess the first drugs that were introduced sort of most famously was Thorazine and that was a, it's an antipsychotic a neuroleptic antipsychotic and the real innovation with Thorazine was that essentially it's a tranquilizer that doesn't put people to sleep that's essentially why it's so useful in psychiatry is that right That's right
1: and and what's interesting is that the first people who used chlorpromazine in psychiatry recognized this and wrote about this very clearly. They wrote about how chlorpromazine creates this neurological syndrome, some of them called it. You know, they're almost talking about how chlorpromazine creates a neurological disease.
0: That's the medical term for? um, uh...
1: Chlorpromazine is the generic name for Thorazine. It was marketed as Thorazine in the United States and Largactyl in the UK. Ah, okay. So when chlorpromazine first came into use, the psychiatrists who were using it were very clear about what it was doing and they described how it was producing this abnormal neurological syndrome that slowed people down and created this state of psychic indifference without just sedating people and sending people to sleep like the old sedatives had done. The, uh, the barbiturates which were used prior to thorazine had just made people very sleepy. So. People thought it was a great breakthrough, but recognized that what it was doing was creating an abnormal neurological state. It wasn't, just, it wasn't just reversing an underlying disease, but then gradually that idea changed and people started to believe instead that it was an antipsychotic, and that it was somehow reversing the processes that were leading to the psychotic symptoms
0: they're basically still this tranquilizer but it works more on the higher functions of the brain and so people lose motivation, they become indifferent to what they're experiencing I mean I, I've been on antipsychotics I was on trilophon and melaril which are some of the older drugs and the, they were very much I mean I remember blacking out from when I was on melaril just not having any consciousness at all and then then I remember just being very much like it was kind of like a some kind of a vice or some kind of like a cotton or wool was on my mind, just totally sluggish and just was groggy and could not. But, you know, I was wandering around and sitting and watching television and sort of being there in, in the hospital.
1: Yes, that's a really good description. And they also seem to ha- um, slow people down physically and cause physical restriction. They slow down movement. I mean, essentially, the older antipsychotic drugs cause a mild state of Parkinson's disease. We know that if you, give, you know, if you give high enough doses, they cause obvious Parkinson's disease-like symptoms. You know, people get very stiff. And what I think is happening at lower doses is, is that they're causing milder symptoms of Parkinson's disease, which is a slowing up of movement, a, res- a feeling of restriction, both physical and mental.
0: Very much like a, a tightening or a gripping of the body. a real And you see people who are on high doses. They look, and that's, I think, where the term the Thorazine shuffle comes in because you have this kind of like very stiff walk yes. because you're no longer free. Your muscles have been tightened up. And when you say Parkinson's disease, tell us a little bit about that.
1: Yes, well, Parkinson's disease is um, it is a neurological disease which is caused by a deficit of dopamine in the brain. There's not enough... The brain isn't producing enough dopamine and we need dopamine for for movement and for thought and so people with parkinson's disease become stiff and their movements slow up and they lose their facial expression Um, and their thought processes slow up eventually as well and the antipsychotics block dopamine production, and therefore they're inducing a, an artificial Parkinson's-type state.
0: And then when they became more widely used, that's when the idea of the dopamine hypothesis as causal for schizophrenia came in.
1: Yes. Now, that that was that hypothesis followed from um, some experiments on haloperidol, and haloperidol is a very strong dopamine blocker. And when it was identified that haloperidol was um, working by blocking dopamine receptors, then people leapt to the conclusion that the underlying cause of schizophrenia must be overactivity of these dopamine receptors or the dopamine system. So there was an assumption that the drugs must be working by curing the underlying problem. Whereas what I've been trying to say is that it's obvious that they produce this artificial state. Um, of as you've described really well this state of restriction
0: and it sounds like previously to the introduction of the psychiatric drugs there were much more psychological understandings of what schizophrenia is all about and then the drugs sort of ushered in an era of seeing things strictly in terms of chemical imbalances and, and biological disorders of the brain and such
1: yes I think prior to the 1950s There was a social psychiatry movement, Um, psychoanalysis was very influential in the United States. But there's always been a tendency within psychiatry to want to find biological causes and biological explanations for mental disorders. Um, So that's always been there, but it was given a really great boost by the introduction of these drugs. Because psychiatry could then present itself as having medical treatments the same as the rest of medicine. being It could present itself as doing the same sort of thing, giving people drug treatments to treat specific conditions
0: supposedly. So when these neuroleptics were introduced and then there was this um, theory that was developed that dopamine was the problem behind why people had schizophrenia, that became really widespread uh, in psychiatry and kind of became the ruling theory about what schizophrenia is all about. Now today, is that still believed or because there's been a tremendous amount of research that's never been able to show that that's actually the case?
1: people in the psychiatric community, psychiatrists and researchers, again seem quite convinced that there is a dopamine abnormality underlying the symptoms of psychosis. Um, Even though, as you say, there's an awful lot of negative evidence, the positive evidence is completely inconsistent, and even... Even evidence that's quoted in favor of it like um, the idea that stimulants, people say that oh, well, stim- we know that stimulant drugs like cocaine and amphetamine cause psychosis and because they stimulate dopamine therefore um, psychosis must be caused by dopamine. But in fact when you look into this, stimulant drugs like amphetamines affect numerous neurotransmitter systems, numerous brain chemicals, it's not just dopamine they affect. And so we don't even know that stimulant-induced psychosis is attributable to dopamine, let alone other episodes of psychosis.
0: So essentially, the idea that there's a biochemical imbalance um, behind schizophrenia really came looking backwards on saying, well, these drugs seem to be working, so therefore it must be the drug action dealing with the underlying disease, but in fact that 's not what's what 's going on
1: yeah that 's exactly what happened so so the, the theory is already based on an assumption that if the drugs do something, they must be curing a disease they must be they must be working on the the cause of the disease the cause of the symptoms and I often give I, I, when I talk about um, different ways of understanding what psychiatric drugs do, I often give the example of alcohol and social anxiety. That um, we know that alcohol can be helpful for people with social anxiety, but that's not because they have an alcohol deficiency. That's because the state of intoxication that alcohol produces is characterized by a bit of social disinhibition, which can be useful if uh, people are very socially anxious. But it it doesn't say anything about the cause of the anxiety, the you know original cause of the anxiety.
0: Yeah, this is something that we talk about in the Harm Reduction Guide to Coming Off Psychiatric Drugs, and you um, discuss in detail in your book that actually this idea that there are recreational drugs on one hand and then they're way different, there are pharmaceutical psychiatric drugs on the other, and we actually don't even like to call those drugs, we call them medications, that the action is completely different. But what you're suggesting is that just like alcohol has a toxic effect and so it causes chemical changes in your brain, gives you an intoxicated experience that for some people might be useful for them in say a social anxiety situation at a party or dealing with um, crowds or meeting people. The same kind of dynamic takes place with psychiatric drugs, that they change consciousness, they intoxicate you, they work in similar kinds of mechanisms of disrupting uh, brain chemistry, and then the effects may or may not be useful based on the intoxication. Is that is that a fair way of kind of assessing this?
1: Absolutely. I, I, that's a very good way of putting it. I think that we should think of psychoactive drugs as including all the drugs we use in psychiatry and recreational drugs and there's no fundamental distinction between them. What I often say, there's no fundamental distinction between the the drugs we use in psychiatry like antipsychotics and antidepressants and the drugs that people take for recreational purposes like alcohol, cannabis, stimulants, etc. What I often say uh, though is that recreational people take recreational drugs because they have nice effects, they make people feel good most psychiatric drugs don't make people feel good. They make people feel quite bad. But that doesn't mean that they're not having psychoactive effects. They're just having a different, they're producing a different sort of state, which most people don't like that much.
0: Yeah. And we also know that with the recreational drugs, a lot of times people are taking them for emotional, psychological, social coping. So they're kind of like they're medicating themselves or allowing themselves to be productive or effective. And but the the difference, of course, is that in psychiatry, you have this huge institutional authority machinery that's saying, wait a second here, there's this underlying disease and disorder and the medications are are treating it or dealing with it.
1: As you're saying, the the thing that I think we're doing wrong at the moment is we're not understanding psychiatric drugs as drugs. We've got to understand them as drugs, as chemical substances that are alien to the body Um, that create an artificial state it might be useful to take them but whenever you take a drug of any sort there are all sorts of dangers and hazards and we need to treat them with that sort of you know with respect we need to understand them understand what sort of effects they can they have in order to be able to use them wisely
0: and you describe this perspective as the drug-centered approach, um, and what psychiatry has historically been doing is a disease-centered approach. And so actually there isn't a lot of education or research on how the drugs affect you in general. It's more focused on, well, how does it affect so-called schizophrenia as a disorder or a disease or, or so-called bipolar disorder?
1: That's right. Absolutely. Yes. So we haven't actually, we haven't understood these drugs properly. There are lots of things that these drugs are doing that we don't know very much about because we haven't looked at them as drugs because we've just been obsessed with do they alter the dopamine receptors or do they, you know, do antidepressants raise your serotonin levels instead of looking at all the other things they're doing and what consequences all those effects have.
0: Do you think that's one of the reasons why the negative effects of these drugs is so underplayed and overlooked in psychiatry, and it's considered just a part of the cost of treating a disorder or treating a disease?
1: Yes, yes, absolutely. So what's happened is that instead of seeing psychiatric drugs as drugs, they've become treatments, and by becoming treatments, Psychiatrists are then able to focus on the supposed disease and the benefits of the treatment, and all the negative aspects of using a drug get get put into the small print, get get shoved aside and obscured.
0: Let's talk about bipolar disorder um, specifically and some of the research and insights that you have into these treatments that are that are given, and very much the message that I've talked to so many different people in my work with the Freedom Center and the Psychiatric Survivor Movement, and now as a counselor, and they are just getting a message, you have bipolar disorder, that your your mood swings are part of an underlying problem in your brain. You were born with it. It's who you are. And therefore, you need the treatment. And what I'm seeing a lot is that people are really terrified. And one of the big messages is you need these medications, because if you don't take them, not only will you have another episode, but you could end up dying from suicide.
1: There's some really frightening stuff out there. And I was looking at a leaflet on this yesterday from the Royal College of Psychiatrists, which was suggesting that if you don't take treatment, you're going to have more frequent episodes. Now, I'm not convinced that that's been soundly shown. There aren't that many studies, long-term studies, of, of how many episodes people have. And the pattern of episodes seems to be very, very variable, actually. And the other thing that's happening with bipolar disorder at the moment is it, it's changed over the last 10 years. When when I first went into psychiatry in, in the early 90s, there was a thing called manic depression. And this was a very rare condition um, in which people had severe episodes of mania or depression that lasted for several months at a time and the rest of the time they'd be fairly normal and now the idea has come about that actually there's many more people who have sort of milder versions of this and and that you can have bipolar nowadays if you have mood swings, you know, if your mood changes from day to day or from hour to hour. And so what what it seems to me that's happened is that many more people who have ordinary emotional fluctuations are being diagnosed as having bipolar disorder and being put on on potentially very toxic drug treatments for it. And, And one of the problems with this is that the research into the effects of drug treatment has only been done with this small group of people who have this much more severe and obvious disorder. And we don't know whether any of that research translates to the wider group of people who have some emotional fluctuations.
0: Now, historically, the treatment for bipolar disorder, and this is, um, and this is still true today, is uh, lithium. Can you tell us about that? Because lithium has a really interesting um, history. I think it was actually an ingredient in 7-Up at one point. The soft drink 7-Up had lithium in it at one point.
1: Yes, lithium's very interesting. There was a fashion for using lithium in the 19th century because it was thought to um to help with stones and gout. There was a lot of uh, there was a lot of gout about in the 19th century and a lot of concern about it and um it was thought that lithium might dissolve the crystals that cause gout. Um, and it might also was thought that it might also dissolve kidney stones, and it was found not to do this. Um, but it still continued to be sold and marketed for this purpose. And one of the reasons that I think that lithium got taken up by psychiatry was because it was available in the hospital pharmacies because of this previous history of its use. Um, and so when this man John Cade experimented with it in Australia, and then Mogan Shue, the, the um, Danish psychiatrists started using it in Denmark, um, they were able to convince people to use it because it, it was there in, in the pharmacy and there was a history of using it because otherwise I think it would have seemed like quite a bizarre idea. It's, um, it's an alkaline metal and it's very toxic and very, you know, it, can, it can easily kill people and that's why people who take lithium have to have blood tests and have to be very careful not to take too much. Um, The interesting thing from the point of view of what we're talking about is that when people started to suggest that it might be useful in psychiatry in the 1950s, they were very much suggesting that that it was a specific treatment for manic depression. No one thought about what psychoactive effects it might be producing. But it's quite obvious from volunteer studies that it has these sedative effects, it's um, dampens down the nervous system, it slows up thinking, slows up reaction times, makes you feel very groggy, possibly also reduces creativity and spontaneity and so of course it's going to slow people down a little bit if they're manic but that doesn't mean it's a specific treatment at all, it's going to do that to anyone.
0: So it doesn't have a targeting effect on some bipolar mechanism in the brain, just like the antipsychotics don't have a targeting of psychotic mechanisms. They just have this tranquilizing effect that will actually affect anyone that takes them.
1: I, I think that the, the effects that we know that lithium has in normal people are you know, easily able to explain the effects it has in, if you give it to someone with mania or bipolar disorder. I don't think you need to um, have any additional explanation. No one, no one's come up with a credible theory about what it might be doing in manic depression that, that is that is specific in any way. Um, there are various various speculations that it might be stabilising the cell membrane or um, correcting electrolyte imbalances, but but nothing nothing concrete has ever been found or even proposed really that makes makes sense of that
0: when people are prescribed lithium, they're put on a regular dose for long-term, and the idea is that it's gonna prevent future episodes, again, with this fear in the background, because often it's it's a really a catastrophic event. You're, 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 you have an incredible manic episode, you have this altered yeah. state of consciousness, yeah. you lose yeah. your job, it's incredibly yeah. shameful, yeah. and then the terrifying experience of yeah. going into the hospital, and then there's the, the fear of suicide, and so people are told, look, you need to be on this long-term to prevent Going back to that crisis, what what about that aspect of it?
1: I think. I mean, I think you're absolutely right. I think manic depression is a very frightening condition, and I think what's happened is that lithium and other medications have been held out as a as a magic bullet for this this frightening disorder. And of pe- and of course, people have wanted to have some something that they could um, pin their hopes on. The trouble is that that the research that has looked into whether or not lithium helps to reduce the risk of relapse has lots of problems and the main problem it has is that what what these studies have done is they've taken people who've been on lithium for a long time already and then they've randomized half of them to stay on the lithium and half of them to have their lithium stopped and it appears that if you stop your lithium especially quickly that's such a shock to the body that it can actually precipitate a manic episode and so A lot of these studies that are supposed to support the value of taking lithium long-term are probably simply showing that if you stop lithium, you get into problems. And and, and because of that, if we're starting lots of people on long-term lithium, we're storing up lots of potential problems unless people take it forever. If they ever stop it, they're more likely to have a relapse than they would be if they'd never gone on it in the first place.
0: So many people are told that when you have a crisis, that it's your underlying disease, your underlying disorder is coming back. And then actually, for a lot of people, it's the medication withdrawal. They've missed medication. They stopped their medication. And the, the rebound, the withdrawal effect, is what leads to a psychotic episode as a result of the medication, not some underlying uh, condition that they had before.
1: Yes, I I mean, I think that's the case in some circumstances and it seems to be particularly true after stopping lithium. I think there's a tendency as well for for, for mental health service staff in particular to blame everything on stopping medication or reducing medication. So if there are any problems, um, if, if someone's experiencing problems and there's recently been a change in the medication, it's always, oh dear, you know, they need to put the medication up again or they should never have stopped it. And um, that makes it incredibly difficult for people to get off medication.
0: That the medication is protecting them from the underlying illness and therefore they should really stay at a dosage that's going to keep things under control.
1: Yes, everything, everything that happens after someone stopped medication or reduced medication is attributed to the illness. People don't take into consideration very much anyway the possibility that it, there might be a withdrawal effect.
0: And there hasn't been very much research on the withdrawal process and the coming off medication process. Is that right?
1: No, very little. There was some research done by a group in America on on lithium withdrawal and, and, and antipsychotic withdrawal and how that could increase the risk of relapse of psychosis as well. But that group seem to have have stopped researching that area now.
0: And this is one of the points that you make in your book, The Myth of the Chemical Cure, that we need a drug-centered approach that looks at all the different effects that different psychoactives have, including the coming off process and what's the best way to support people yeah. and the best way yeah. to do it. Tell us about the mood stabilizer drugs, which are now um, used um, in addition to lithium for a bipolar disorder.
1: Well, the mood stabilizers refers to any drug, really, that's prescribed for someone with bipolar disorder. And it now that now includes a group of quite different medications. So you've got lithium on one hand you've got some antipsychotics are being promoted nowadays as mood stabilizers, i.e. as treatments for people with bipolar. And then the other group of drugs that are used are drugs that started life as anti-epileptic medications and are now being promoted for the use with mood stabilizers. And that idea came about in the 1980s. Someone, Someone thought that maybe manic depressive episodes were similar to epilepsy and therefore it would be a good idea to use anti-epileptic drugs. Of course, they're all very sedative, like the antipsychotics and like lithium, so they probably have similar sorts of effects.
0: So these anti-convulsants, the anti-epilepsy drugs themselves are psychoactive and they have a tranquilizing effect just like the lithium does in the antipsychotics, and so someone just decided, hey, let's try them for people who are diagnosed with uh, bipolar.
1: That's absolutely right, and... The concept of a mood stabilizer is very misleading because none of these drugs have been shown to stabilize, to stop mood fluctuations or reduce mood fluctuations in normal people or or in anyone. They don't do that. They're just sedative drugs. And the evidence base for their use are some studies that show that possibly possibly they might reduce, reduce the risk of relapse in people who have manic depression or the most severe form of bipolar disorder. That's what they've supposedly been shown to do. Although, as I said, like with the lithium studies, there are problems with those trials. But but it's on the basis of those trials that they're being claimed to be mood stabilizers. But the, the name mood stabilizer, it seems to me, is very misleading because it implies a drug that will help to even out mood fluctuations. And that's not what they do.
0: If you are just tuning in, this is Madness Radio. We are speaking with Joanna Moncrief. She is a senior lecturer at the University of College London, a practicing psychiatrist, and the author of The Myth of the Chemical Cure, a critique of psychiatric drug treatment. Is there any research that taking lithium or taking these anticonvulsant drugs actually um, lowers the risk of suicide?
1: There are a lot of people claiming that at the moment. There are some academic psychiatrists claiming that, claiming that lithium in particular reduces the risk of suicide. In my opinion, these claims are based on very flawed studies and these studies are flawed because what they do is they discount anyone who stops lithium. So anyone has problems with lithium or is possibly going into a deep depressive phase and doesn't stop taking it is is immediately discounted from the figures. So they're actually only looking at people who are doing quite well and are able to keep taking their lithium over a long period. And therefore, I don't think they're really giving a, a fair, a fair um, estimate of suicide rates. And then there were also some studies that show quite high rates of suicide in people who take lithium. There's one from the 1980s, a British-based study, quite a large one, that shows quite a, quite a raised rate of, of suicide in people taking lithium.
0: And there's a potential role in drug withdrawal itself in being a su- factor in suicide.
1: Yes. It, it, well, there is a bit of research showing that as well, It's showing that possibly there's an increased suicide rate after stopping lithium.
0: One of the things that we mentioned before is that lithium was very popular and kind of um, these patent medicines um, in the early part of the 20th century. And I had mentioned that it was in 7up and beer, but it's really very toxic chemical. People sometimes say, well, it's it's a salt. It's a natural salt, but it's actually quite dangerous. What are some of the toxic effects that people can get?
1: The toxic effects are um, neuro, se- severe neurological suppression, really. Um, so you people become very sedated and confused and, and Um, very slowed up and they get a big tremor and then it also has an effect on the kidneys and the gastrointestinal system so people also um, start vomiting and have diarrhea so those are some of the symptoms and and one of the points i'm been trying to make is that the the supposed therapeutic um, effects of lithium um, are milder manifestations of those toxic effects so when when you get toxic from lithium, when you've had an awful lot of lithium, you get confused and very drowsy. When you've had just a bit of lithium, you get rather sedated and slowed up.
0: Yeah, I've met a number of people over the years who have had kidney transplants as a result of lithium long-term.
1: Yes, it can have um, quite severe effects on the kidneys as well.
0: I think you wrote that an early psychiatrist who questioned the um, use of lithium for manic depression called it, quote, the treatment of the manic patient by lithium poisoning.
1: Yes, I found that quotation that was interesting, wasn't it? So you see, there, there were people around who were saying that, who recognized that situation even then, But they were drowned out, essentially, by the enthusiasm of the people who suggested that lithium was a specific medical treatment.
0: One of the things that we're seeing today is this incredible rise in the number of children that are diagnosed uh, as bipolar. Um, I saw a figure that since 1996, there's been a 4,000 percent increase in the number of teenagers and children diagnosed with bipolar
1: it's horrific isn't it? We, thankfully we we uh, don't have that situation in the United Kingdom and and I would hope that maybe it's, it's slowing down in the United States but I don't know.
0: Why do you think it's different in the UK compared to the US? Is it the advertising that we have on television with the pharmaceutical drug commercials and
1: Partly that that drug treatments are a more visible part of, of the culture but I, I don't they it wouldn't have been possible to market the drugs that are used for, for childhood bipolar disorder in television commercials because they're being mm. the drugs are being used off license in these situations so um, so it's not it's not that medications are being directly advertised to children or to parents but the idea of that it's acceptable to give drug treatment to children, that behavior problems can be diagnosed as a medical illness and treated with a drug. I suppose all these ideas have filtered into American culture to a greater extent than they've filtered into British culture, although they're here too.
0: What kinds of things should parents do if they have children who seem to be having difficulties with mood or with behavior or being in school and they are not wanting to put them on medication.
1: There are other forms of help, I mean up until fairly recently all these problems, most of these problems in the United Kingdom would be dealt with without drug treatment Um, and they were dealt with with social workers and psychologists and people who would help to try and identify what the cause of the behavioral problems were. And sometimes by linking up with schools and trying to identify if there are any particular issues
0: at school. And now there's more of a disease model, so the problem is no longer, say, something that's happening in the family or some emotional issue that the child is having that can be understood and and grappled with, but it's a framework of the problem is in the kid's brain
1: that's right. The problem's being located more and more in the child, and so people are looking less at the system around the child and and how that might be impacting on the child to produce the behavior that's problematic.
0: Well, this brings us to an aspect of your work that I think is really interesting, which is that you describe psychiatric um, medications as having an aspect of social control. Can you tell us a little bit more about that and how you see it fitting into some of the larger uh, political issues here?
1: Yes. Well, Psychiatric problems are, consist of behavior that, that someone doesn't like. It may be the person who's showing the behavior, who, who doesn't want to be behaving in this way, but it, it, it may be other people who don't like the behavior of someone um, close to them. And psychiatric medications are designed to try and change that behavior. And therefore, they are about control but the thing that is happening is because they are called medical treatments and because the behavior is given a diagnosis and called a medical disorder that control is obscured and it's dressed up as as medical treatment as meds and that means that it's easier to go to more more extremes than you might otherwise go in changing behavior because the therapists and mental health service staff are not Being held accountable for for changing people because it's assumed that what they're doing is in the person's interest because they're giving medical giving them medical
0: treatment and and when you say control you're not necessarily meaning that in an exclusively bad way I mean there are ways there are times when we do want to get ourselves more under control or get greater control of the situation but it sounds like you're asking for greater honesty like you were describing the difference between a Disease centered focus and a drug centered focus. Let's be honest, these are psychoactive drugs. They change um, brain chemistry. They intoxicate us. And is that useful to us? Let's look at the benefits and the risks and the implications of having mind altering um, substances um, in us. And uh, so the control issue is something that also should be talked about more openly. Is that right? Yes,
1: absolutely. That's what I'm saying. I think we should be, it, it should be more openly debated and it should be more democratic if we're going to control people's behavior and i think it, i think i think society does need to control some people's behavior sometimes um so it needs to control the behavior of some of the people that we diagnose currently as having psychiatric problems but we need to do that honestly and openly to make sure that we do not overstep the boundaries that we do not go too far. And the trouble is if it's dressed up as medical treatment, there's nothing to stop you, there's nothing to stop the system from really heavily drugging people and controlling people in a very authoritarian way for a very long time. And that's what I think happens to some people in the psychiatric system.
0: What do you think is driving this push for disease and medical framework for how to deal with people's behavior that is problematic?
1: I think there are a number of drivers and I think um, one of the drivers is coming from government and has been coming from central government for a long time because it's easier to medicalize this set of problems and just say, okay, that's, we'll just hand that over to a set of doctors to deal with and we can forget about it. Then governments then don't have to deal with the very, with, with what are some very difficult democratic questions about you know, what sort of behavior you're going to control and what not, um, what sort of means of control you're going to use, how far that's going to go. Um, you know, it, it's all about balancing up people's interests and that's that can be a difficult thing to do. But I think there's been a big push from the pharmaceutical industry as well. Another way that drugs are used for social control is they're used to medicalize problems that people might otherwise see in a social way. So, if someone's unhappy about their life and about their situation, at the moment, they are being encouraged to look into themselves and, and see themselves as being the problem. And the solution that is held out to them is, oh, you must take an antidepressant or an antipsychotic for your bipolar disorder. Or Whereas it might be better for them to actually look at their situation and identify what. What it is that's wrong, what it is that's making them unhappy, and if people were more able to to do that, there might be there might be a greater resistance to some of the social trends that are happening at the moment that make people's lives very difficult. All, um, what I'm trying to say is all the, all this use of antidepressants, um, in particular, um, and other drugs that are doled out often by um, by general practitioners is is taking taking our attention away from social changes and social problems, social issues that are making life difficult for many people and essentially blaming the individuals.
0: Do you think that there's a connection between the rise in psychiatric drug treatments over the past decades and the continued changes in our global economy and the way in which there's more economic crisis and greater poverty and more inequality?
1: Yes, absolutely. I, I think that the increasing use of psychiatric medications is a, is a symptom of increasing consumerism, really. The, the idea that the, it must be possible to buy a solution for everything and that every aspect of life is marketable. You can make a commodity out of it and you can buy something um, to solve the problem.
0: I wanted to ask you about the DSM-5 that's coming out. There's a whole new set of diagnoses and a whole new Bible for what are considered normal and what are considered abnormal states of mind. What do you think of of the new DSM that's coming out?
1: I mean, I know that the people who are devising it are trying to incorporate dimensional factors. So they're trying to get away from the idea that you either have this psychiatric disease or you don't and look more at the sort of vulnerabilities and tendencies that people have, which sounds good in a way. I have two concerns about it. One is that I think that it won't really transform into practice because at the end of the day, there's still going to be a pressure for doctors and mental health workers to stick labels on people for administrative purposes. Um, And secondly, I have the concern that it might actually enable the pharmaceutical industry to push the boat out even more, you know, and, and, and get persuade more and more people that they have mental health problems that they need to take pills for.
0: So whether or not you have a bipolar disorder is not an either-or question, but it's more, well, if you have bipolar tendencies, you can take this medication, yeah. or if you have that side.
1: I think they're, they're doing this partly to try and get away from labeling and the stigma associated with psychiatric labels so they've probably got some quite good motivations there but I have a concern that it may be used by, that it may prove useful to the pharmaceutical industry Um, just as the, as, um, the move away from the idea of schizophrenia and towards this idea of psychosis has been quite useful for the pharmaceutical industry and they've been able to, by getting away from the schizophrenia label, Focusing on psychosis, they've been able to get a lot more people into the net of antipsychotic prescribing.
0: So there's a right. marketing push kind of behind that. So tell us a little bit more about that. I'm not sure. I mean, with all the criticism of the word schizophrenia, which is, after all, a 100-year-old a term, um, there's sort of a push to do, use more psychosis as a term, and then there's a danger, of course, that that spreads the influence of diagnosis.
1: Psychosis has become a popular term, and and it's partly become popular because of people's dissatisfaction and dislike of the term schizophrenia, which is completely understandable. It's become a very stigmatizing um, and frightening label. But what's happened is that by using the term psychosis, has been a push to get people into treatment earlier. This idea of early intervention in psychosis has become very popular, and that's been supported by the pharmaceutical industry. They you know, they've support they they've paid for a lot of journal supplements on early intervention and paid for various sponsored conferences on early intervention and the thing is that it's it's much easier to give someone a label of psychosis and therefore give them an antipsychotic early on in the course of their problems rather than maybe waiting a bit as would previously have been done the, the thing is that with, with the label schizophrenia it was it, because it was recognized to be you know quite a potentially quite a Stigmatizing label, psychiatrists were probably a bit more reluctant to use it. And that went along with a reluctance to start antipsychotics before they felt they really needed to. And so, what's happened with the replacing schizophrenia with psychosis, one of the consequences is that it's made it easier, I think, to start people on antipsychotics early and therefore to start more people on
0: antipsychotics. So ironically, by using a less stigmatizing term, you end up having more people getting the diagnosis and more people on medications, so it becomes a bigger market for the pharmaceutical industry.
1: I I think that's what's happened, yes. I I think the point about long-term treatment for bipolar disorder is that all, all these drugs that are recommended, like lithium and the anti-epileptics, um, Depakote and uh, olanzapine, the antipsychotics, they're all sedative drugs. They may make it slightly may make you slightly less likely to have a manic relapse. They may do. The research is, I would say, is still not conclusive because of all these problems with um, with the discontinuation design and people having withdrawal-related lapses. Relapses, but they may do. even if they do, if they reduce your risk of having a relapse a little bit, you might feel that a relapse is so awful that you want to go on to the drugs for years and years and years in order to get that benefit, but you might not because being on sedative drugs for years and years and years isn't very pleasant and and, and all these drugs have other physical side effects as well. So I think that's the that's the balance that people are looking at when they're thinking about long term treatment for bipolar disorder or manic depression and I think the problem is that if if these drugs are sold as treatments people, people get an unrealistic idea about their ability to reduce relapses at the very best as I say they're going to reduce your risk of relapse a little bit they're not going to wipe it out completely at all and the consequence is that you're going to be on you know you're going to be sedated for years and years
0: and the long-term risks that that has in terms of your body and cognitive changes and and memory and
1: yes absolutely plus you're going to be on a on a treatment that has i mean all 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 of the current mood stabilizers have a um, wide range of severe physical side effects with long-term treatment but i think it's a really difficult decision for for people to make because as you said earlier Manic depression and manic episode is very frightening and can have huge, huge consequences for people's lives. And so, you know, if, if there is something that substantially reduces the risk, then that might be a good thing. But we need to balance that up with, with the negative effects. And we don't really know whether they reduce that risk to a, a significant degree.
0: Yeah, and, and there are also the other aspects of alternative ways of dealing with a crisis or preventing a crisis that we talk about quite a bit on um, on Madness Radio. And additionally, I think the fears are often exaggerated. I mean, people are just completely overwhelmed. Your personality changes dramatically, and then it's kind of like there's nothing we can do other than call 911, and hopefully people would have other ways of kind of addressing uh, addressing that rather than seeing psychosis and an episode as the end of the world and as the worst thing that could ever happen to you
1: that's right and i think um I, I think the way that that drugs are presented for the treatment of bipolar disorder makes that fear worse because it's presented that you know if you don't take these drugs you'll have another relapse and if you do take them hopefully you won't and uh, if you don't take them the relapses will get more frequent and you might commit suicide if you All well, that you know these really very frightening um, scenarios which don't have a lot of evidence base behind them are put to people.
0: One of the things that people are told is that there's a kindling effect, that the more you go without treatment, the more you episodes that you have without medication, that you're just, your disease gets worse and worse and worse, so you'd better start medication early. Is there any research that actually shows that?
1: There is a Swiss group who have followed up um, who followed up a bunch of people with, uh, with manic depression over a number of years, and they, their theory was that the episodes got closer and closer together. That, that research has been quoted very widely, and that's, that, that is the basis for these claims that you need to take treatment, otherwise you'll have more and more episodes. But actually, if you look at the paper that that's based on, it's not, that's not quite what they found. They just found that people who had a lot of episodes were more likely to have another episode. So that's not the same thing as saying that everyone has progressively more frequent episodes through the course of their disorder. And actually, if you look at other research, what you find is that it's very variable. You know, some people will have episodes of increasing frequency for a few years but other people won't even people whose episodes get more frequent for so the first few years it then seems to space out a little bit after that a lot of people it seems to burn out in, in um, later decades so it's a very very variable condition
0: That's one of the things that I've noticed as well is that often it's other factors that can be cumulative. For example, if someone is chronically sleep deprived or their nutrition is going downhill or they're suffering from situations of poverty or they get more and more isolation. Yes, those can be cumulative over time, but that doesn't necessarily mean that there's a disease action that's taking place. Those are circumstantial and social kinds of factors.
1: And I think, as you said, that people can learn to um, get some control. I mean, I, I suppose what's so frightening about manic depression is it's, you know, it's completely out of your control. This episode just comes on and you have this change in personality, as you say. But I think people do learn to exercise some control over it often after a few episodes.
0: We are just about out of time. Joanna, give us the information about your book again and also a way to contact you and if there's a website for the Critical Psychiatry Network as well.
1: Critical Psychiatry Network um, has a website, it's criticalpsychiatry.co.uk, and there are a lot of papers um, written by myself and other members of the Critical Psychiatry Network on that website and other interesting articles giving an alternative view of psychiatry. My book is published by Palgrave Macmillan. It was out in paperback in the UK in September, and I think it's due out in paperback in the US sometime around now, The Myth of the Chemical Cure.
0: Joanna Moncrief, thank you for joining us today on Madness Radio.
1: Thanks very much, Will. It's really nice to talk
0: to you. You've been listening to an interview with Joanna Moncrief. She is senior lecturer at the University College in London, a practicing psychiatrist with the National Health Service. She's the co-chair of the Critical Psychiatry Network and author of The Myth of the Chemical Cure, a critique of psychiatric drug treatment. That's all the time we have on Madness Radio. Thanks for tuning in. You've been listening to Madness Radio, voices and visions from outside mental health. Madness Radio is co-sponsored by Peer Run Support Communities, Freedom Center, The Icarus Project, and Portland Hearing Voices. Hosted by Will Hall, music producer is John Rice, with technical assistance from Jeremy Lantzman. Listen to our internet stream, podcasts, and show archives at madnessradio.net. Madness Radio can be heard on FM stations on the Pacifica Radio Network, including KBOO in Oregon, WXOJ and WBCR in Massachusetts, Alaska's KWMD, and WPRR in Michigan. If you have an idea for a story or guest on Madness Radio, to help get us broadcast on a station near you, or if you just want to share what's in your head, contact radio at madnessradio.net.